Jesus, died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not, um, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks, Kate. Uh, just before we launch into 1 Thessalonians, there's uh, an announcement I'd like to make, which is important in the life of Christian Union here at UWA. Many of you are aware that Ben Ray is the sort of team leader of the staff workers, the team who work alongside uh, Christian Union, um, which means he's sort of part of the student committee that sets the directions and plans for Christian Union. Ben has announced... Where's Ben? Most of you know who Ben is. He got up before. Yeah. Um, ben has announced that he's going to head off 
God willing, uh, to the UK to start a PhD mid next year or a little bit after. And so uh, we have been working to try and find someone who can take on that role and be Ben's successor. And I want to let you know that Matt Smith uh, has been appointed as that person. Matt, can you just wave so we... Yeah. Uh, ben is going to keep go, doing that role till about mid-next year, and Matt is in waiting. Uh, but Matt, we're really appreciative to God uh, for you and look forward to uh, working together in the Lord's name. Can I pray? Lord, we thank you for Ben Ray. Uh, thank you for the enormous energy and gifts he's brought to this task and continues to do it week by week. We thank you that, uh, for his involvement with the committee in uh, the planning and direction setting of CU over quite a few years now. Uh, Father, we ask that as he and Shelley um, plan to head off, please provide for them, open the doors that need to be opened. And please make that time of study a very rich one in equipping him further. We thank you for Matt Smith. I thank you for his willingness to take on this uh, responsibility. We commit him to you. Please keep him loyal to Jesus, um, faithful to the gospel, uh, full of love and faith and hope. Uh, And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. People say there's two unavoidable realities in life. You know what they are? Death and taxes. And we're pretty happy talking about taxes, but not about death, I don't think. We tend to avoid it because it's a pretty uncomfortable topic for most of us and an uncomfortable reality for those for whom it's come close. Woody Allen, I think, captures my uh, sort of uh, innate attitude to it. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I think in Australia, there's a growing number of people who sort of push back on this idea that we should be afraid of death. They say it's just natural. It's part of of life. You live, you die, your body rots in the grave or goes up in smoke and ashes, and that's all there is. There's nothing more to life. Get over it. Get used to it. Just embrace it. It's just the circle of life. And they see religion as sort of the, the escape route for those who can't handle death. But for the majority of Australians, at least by all polls, there is some sort of hope that somehow it will all be okay on the other side. They might not be sure how. Maybe we just become one of those stars in the sky or we are up in the clouds or maybe we get reincarnated as something else, but they will cling to almost any suggestion that offers hope. They live on wishful thinking when they do think about death. As we move to the ancient world, the first century in uh, Mediterranean world, the same sort of uncertainties and anxieties grip the people of that world. And it appears that the Thessalonian Christians have got their anxieties as well. They've written to Paul and asked, well, not written, they probably through Timothy, have asked him, what about Christians who die before Christ's return? Now, it's pretty clear that Paul told them about Christ's return. Back in chapter 1, their conversion, Paul describes as people now waiting for his son from heaven. Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They knew that Jesus was going to come back one day. History would come to an end with the return of Jesus. Uh, And they were living in expectation of that. They were looking forward to meeting him, to being rescued from judgment. That was all good. 
But it seemed like Paul hadn't addressed, what about those who die before Christ returns? If he hasn't yet returned and some of our congregations, some of our church brothers and sisters have died, what happens to them? And that's what Paul raises in verse 13. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. See, if they're not there alive to meet Jesus when he comes, will they be disadvantaged? Will they miss out altogether? Or maybe will we never see them again? And Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Because on the day Christ returns, they will be raised to life. On the day Christ returns, they will be raised first and those who are still alive will join them to meet Jesus and to be together. It'll actually turn out not just okay, but better than okay for them. Now, you could say, Paul, is that just wishful thinking? Are you just part of your culture who hopes there'll be something more? And Paul says, no. Verse 14, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. For Paul, this is not the power of positive thinking. It's cold, hard history, events of the recent past. He's writing about 20 years after those events. Jesus died outside Jerusalem and three days later was seen alive again by many people. But for Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus are not just extraordinary events. They're not just a display of extraordinary power and love. They're not just a, a, a proof of Jesus' divinity. Paul isn't sitting back saying, wow, that was impressive. Now, what else can I see? Now, he thought that the death and resurrection of Jesus changes your destiny and my destiny. It has a direct personal significance for each of us and our future. And interestingly, it's the death and the resurrection. The resurrection for many of us sort of makes sense, but it's the death as well. In chapter 5, verse 10, still talking about this topic, he says, he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live together with him. See, he died for us. And this constant biblical theme, this idea that Christ died in my place, in your place, so that we might escape the wrath that we deserved, is at the heart of this hope of eternal life, of resurrection. Because if he's died for us, if he died my death, then I will not die permanently. There must be something more. But his resurrection shows us what more. Because when Jesus rose again, it wasn't just a magic trick. He overcame death, the brutal, stubborn, unmovable reality that life ends in death was moved. The power that grips all of us, we we can't escape death, we know that. And once it's got us, we can't do anything about it. That power was overpowered by Jesus. The inescapable was escaped by Jesus. And this too, he says, was for us, for our sake. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul wrote, not long after this. Uh, Sorry, let me... um, I've missed a slide, have I? I have missed a slide. No, there it is. Um, uh, Paul says, Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, the idea is of a crop. You you see the fruit trees out out in the paddock, the the apples or the, the apricots, and the first fruits are the first ones that ripen of all the ones on the trees that are waiting there. And when you take that first fruit and you sink your teeth into it, 
and it's crisp and juicy and sweet, you know what all the, the rest of the crop are going to taste like as well. It guarantees the rest, and it's a foretaste of the rest. And Paul says Jesus' resurrection is like that. It's the first one. It's the first person who came back from death into immortal life, to resurrected life. Some others were, came back for a little while, like Lazarus, but Jesus is the first who's come back to immortal life. And in God's purposes, it is the first fruits. It guarantees that you and I will be raised as well. So you worried about those who have died, says Paul? You don't need to. Jesus died and rose again, and so will they. And Paul goes on to say, it's not just an event that tells us this. It's also the words of Jesus. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, Jesus spoke about the resurrection in numerous places. If we just pick one of them, in John 5, this is what he said. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's talking about himself here, the Son of Man. They'll hear my voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. Those who've done what is evil rise to be condemned. That's what Jesus is saying. When he gives the command, come out. Every person will come out of death, out of their graves. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? Uh, People have pointed out that when Jesus said at Lazarus' grave, come out Lazarus, if he hadn't added Lazarus, all mayhem would have broken loose. (laughs) And on that day, when Christ returns, it will. Everything, every person will come alive again. See, what what Paul knows uh, of the future is not immortality of the soul. It's not that you die and your soul is separated and it goes off and continues an existence forever, floating around somewhere. Now, this is concrete. This is physical. This, this is real. Paul actually does believe that when you die, your soul, if you're a Christian, goes to be with Jesus. But that's not his hope. That, that's only temporary. His hope is resurrection. His hope is that death itself will be defeated. And we will return to real life. And it comes at the end. It comes on the day Christ returns. Of Christ's parousia is the technical term. He talks about a specific day. According to the Lord's word, we're left at the coming of the Lord. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, verse 16, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. That's what's going to happen. A specific day, a climactic event, and Jesus will command those in their graves to come out. It, it, like a, it's, it'll have a trumpet sound, like a military invasion. And every corpse and every ash will obey, resurrected, no longer sleeping in their graves, but awake, alive. And those who are alive on that day, they will join them. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, towards the end of that chapter, This is what Paul says. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. We won't all die before Christ returns, but those who are still alive, we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we who are still alive will be changed. The perishable must close itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. That is, those who are still alive will be transformed into immortality, no longer subject to, to, to decay and death to sickness and illness, but like those who are raised, having immortal bodies. And so the living will join those who are raised, reunited with family and friends. 
Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. That will be the beginning of never-ending life with a capital L. Life where death is banished and all the effects of evil are eradicated. Real, physical, immortal life in a new creation. And he describes it at its heart, its core, as being with the Lord. It's relational. I was talking to Sinclair yesterday about the effects of COVID. And she said that it's hard because she does get to talk to her parents who are in South Africa sort of reasonably regularly, they talk, they, they communicate, but they're not with each other. And it's different. With is the sort of, it's whole relationship, isn't it? When you're with somebody, not just being able to talk to them from a distance or text them or send them messages. We will be with the Lord and with each other. The one we were made through, the one for whom we were made, the one who died for us, the one that sinners found irresistible will be with him forever. That's what eternal life is. Now, I need to make a couple of caveats here. Paul, in this section, is only talking about Christians, those who die in Christ. In chapter 5, he does mention those who aren't Christians. Uh, Verse 3, when the Lord comes, people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman. That is, those who are not Christian, who, who don't trust Jesus... This is not their future. But I want you to see that the hope for Christians is not, I'll go to heaven when I die, but that Christ one day will come here. He will return and resurrect me. And that, in Paul's mind, is an extraordinary prospect. It's so much more, so much better than rotting in the grave or reincarnation or just having souls that continue forever. A few years ago in Sydney, a a group ran a thing called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. It just sounds intriguing, doesn't it? The Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And they invited people from all over the world, academics and leaders in their fields. Uh, And uh, the finale of the whole festival was a a, a broadcast panel um, where they were asked, which dangerous idea do you think has the greatest potential to change the world for the better? One answer was... Abortion should be mandatory for 30 years to reduce the population. Now, that is a dangerous idea and an evil idea. Peter Hitchens, who's a journalist, a British journalist, his brother Christopher Hitchens, you might have heard of, has been a very outspoken atheist. Peter Hitchens answered with these words. He said, The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. That's the most dangerous idea in history. And I think Paul would resonate with that. Yes, that changes everything. Hitchens was asked, (laughs) why is that so dangerous? And he said, well, of course, it alters the whole of human behaviour and all of our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there's justice and there's hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. And if we reject it, It also alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. I resonate with that. And so does Paul. And so in chapter 5, 
It's sort of like Paul takes advantage of the fact that this topic of the return of Christ and resurrection has come up. They've asked a question about it to give a little bit more direction and shape to the Thessalonians as they live. Uh, He's been able to replace that uncertainty with solid hope. But now he wants to talk about how you live now in the light of Christ's coming. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, we don't need to write to you much about times and dates anyway, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know what a thief in the night is like, don't you? They don't send you a text saying, I'm going to come at 11pm tonight or 3am tomorrow morning. Because they, they want to catch you unaware. Now, it's not that God is trying to catch you out, but it will be like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen. He's not going to give you forewarning. He just says it's going to happen one day. And so Paul urges them to live not knowing when it will happen, but knowing that it will happen. And he says at the time when Jesus returns, most people will be just getting on with life, thinking it'll just keep going and going and going. The 2000s, the 3000s, the 4000s, however long the universe can last for. But Paul says, no, one day the door will slam shut. History will come to an end. Jesus will show up and everything will change. And so he says in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night and to the darkness. We belong to the day. That is, he's saying, firstly, you're not ignorant about Jesus coming back. You're in the light, aren't you? And so you can orientate your life around that reality, just like you are with exams at the moment, I take it. But he plays and puns on the ideas of light and daylight and night and darkness. Because he says, we Christians, it's not just that we know something, we're in the light. We belong to the day. Our natural habitat is the daylight of the age to come. We know that the resurrection is our destiny, to live in the light of God forever eternally, permanently. Now, those who are ignorant or ignore Christ's return and the day of judgment, well, they belong to the night. They're in darkness and their lifestyle reflects it. So he says in verse 6, Don't be like them who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. Now, again, he uses this night and darkness metaphorically and literally. Because it's true, isn't it? When do people sleep? When are they unaware? When, when, when do they just head off into oblivion? Well, that's at night, isn't it? When do they get drunk? When do they drown all their sorrows and leave reality and try and, and create another world that they can escape into? Well, they do that at night, don't they? Generally speaking. Uh, I know when I was a uni student, uh, occasionally we had champagne breakfasts and people were, were drunk for the whole day and the night. But normally they waited till night time. You get drunk at night. And that's a metaphor for living a life in a stupor. Just blinded, darkness, deliberately living as if Christ will never return, as if there's no day of reckoning, as if it doesn't matter. I can just, I can just coast along. And Paul says, that, that's darkness, that, that, that's night. No, we don't belong to the night. Because of Jesus, we belong to the day. So live as people who belong to the day, awake, alert, sober, which is metaphorical and literal. <laughs> don't be drunk. 
The alcohol does that terrible thing to you. But don't be drunk in the other sense of just oblivious, living in a fantasy world, pretending that Jesus won't return. Now live in the light. Live as those who belong to the day. Now he doesn't mean by that you've got to stay awake 24-7 till your eyes are so heavy you just can't stay awake. No, it's the idea of, of generally in your lifestyle being alert. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Some people think of the day Christ returns like this cliff edge that's somewhere off in the future. And we don't know when it is, so we don't know how far we are from it. So we just sort of, well, history is marching towards it, but we don't know when we'll get there. And so generally speaking, I can ignore it. Of course, it probably won't happen tomorrow. But Paul's saying, no, think of it as a cliff edge that you're not working towards, you're walking along. It's imminent. It's there. And it's there all the time. Christ might return today. And so be alert all the time. There's no space to say, oh, I don't need to worry about it for the moment. I can just get on with living my life in other ways. Not if the cliff edge is right there. Jesus' return is imminent. Now, Paul's not trying to freak them out as he says this. Notice in verse 9 and 10, he says, quite strongly, God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we awake or asleep, whether we die or still alive when Christ returns, we may live together with him. Our destiny is secure because of Jesus. So in a sense, he says, live life backwards. Most of us live life forwards, don't we? We we look forward to what might happen in the future. I might one day graduate from university. Hey, I might. I might get a job and it might actually be a decent job and I might get money in my pocket and I might meet that girl or guy and we might actually hit it off and and we might go somewhere together and, you know, that trip I want to take that COVID has smashed, well, I might get to take that trip one day. We we live with those sort of forward-looking expectations. And Paul says, no, think about the other way. You were appointed for salvation. That is sure. So instead of looking forward like that, look backwards. You will be saved. That's sure. So live your life there with that sureness, with that security, with that confidence. And so when you're tempted to cave in to darkness or to quote a popular book, to go over to the dark side, that's not who you are. You've been appointed for salvation. You belong to the day. So don't live that way. And Paul brings out two huge implications for us. The first one is in chapter 4, verse 13. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. I don't know whether you've been to many funerals in your life. I've been to quite a lot. And there's a huge difference just in feel and tone between the funeral of a Christian and the funeral of a non-Christian. It's palpable. And I've noticed over the last 10, 15 years or so, that non-Christians have stopped having funerals if they can. Instead, they've replaced them with Thanksgiving services. And in a Thanksgiving service, the idea is that you don't get confronted by their death. The body is not there in the casket. You're removed from it. You try and remove all the the, the frills and the, the things that remind you of death. And all you do is you remember the good times you had with the person, their jokes, the fun you had with them to try and anaesthetise ourselves to the reality of death. But Christian funerals are so different. Yes, we grieve. There's loss, but it's temporary loss. 
we know we'll see them again. We know that one day they will stand resurrected with their Lord Jesus, the one they've trusted. And so there's joy and anticipation as well as loss and sorrow. Paul doesn't say, don't grieve at all. He says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. Secondly, he urges us to encourage each other. That's in chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words in 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are doing. In a situation of grief, most people advise you to say nothing. Just be quiet, just be with them. Paul isn't like that. Because he knows there's something to say that will make a difference. Christ died and rose again. Christ died and rose again. And so they will be raised if they're in Christ. We will see them again. On that day, we'll be with them and Jesus. They are words of real encouragement, aren't they? Substantial encouragement. They don't shut up. When a Christian person dies, encourage one another with these words. And many keen observers of Western Christianity have suggested that the most glaring weakness among us is the loss of hope in the return of Jesus Christ. There's very little consciousness amongst many Christians about the possibility, let alone the imminence of Christ's return. Now, in a sense, we've got an excuse. It hasn't happened for 2,000 years. The generations before us have been waiting and some of them have been on the edge of their seats and they've been disappointed and maybe you've thought it should come and it hasn't come yet. Yeah, we do have an excuse in that sense. But I suspect that most Christians have given up longing for the day, given up looking forward to the resurrection from the dead. You know what happens when you do that? It hollows out our Christianity. It hollows out our Christian lives because we just fit in with those around us who, as like we've become, don't think that the day will come. It doesn't figure in the way that they live and it doesn't then figure in the way we live. We just hope it'll turn out okay in the end somehow and we lose the gravity that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. It will bring destruction on those without Christ and mean resurrection and eternal life for us. And as I said, the effects of that erosion of expectation, I think, are devastating. Because we now live life for now. My wants, my desires, my demands are enjoyment now. I want satisfaction now. I want indulgence now. Packer calls it hot tub religion. <laughs> you know what hot tubs are? Now, one of those things you fill with warm water, you just lie back and relax in it, being pampered by the warm water and the bubbles and maybe the jets as well. And he, he likens Christianity in the Western world to be like that because we've stopped believing and hoping in the return of Jesus. We become compromised with the world infected with the spirit of the age. There's a little sense of gravity at the destiny of the ignorant and lost because in the end it really doesn't matter, does it? And all our dreams and hopes are this age. In fact, I suspect that if Christ returned today, many of us would say, oh, please, Jesus, just postpone for a while with you. You know, I, I want to graduate. I want to make that trip. I hope it'll turn out okay with this girl or with this guy. We actually don't want him to come back because we think we can get it all now. now Paul says Christian hope changes all that. Christ died and Christ rose again. Now, the passage finishes with uh, some instructions. I'm not going to look at those. I'll let you look at them in your own time. 
But I want to finish with verses 23 and 24. Paul finishes this letter in a really appropriate way. He prays for the Thessalonians. And I presume he'd pray the same thing for us. It's a heartfelt prayer. Its focus is the coming of our Lord Jesus. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Keep your whole body, soul, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So he wants them to live in the light that Jesus will return one day. And what matters on that day is their being kept, sanctified, blameless. That's what will matter. Living in the light of imminent exams, what really matters? I think this matters, doesn't it? And especially living in the light of the imminent return of Jesus. This is what matters. Can I pray this for you? Let's pray. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Amen. And what will God do? Verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful. The one who appointed you to eternal life and salvation. He's faithful. He will do it. He's more committed than you to get you there like that on the last day. And that is wonderfully reassuring. Amen.